Hi everyone, Steve here. In this episode, I'd like to take you on a technological and historical journey. Now, I promise this won't be complicated or even boring, and along the way you might learn some really interesting little tidbits about telecom technology. Most of you know that on January 1st, 1984, AT&T was broken up by the federal government as a way to limit monopoly power by a single company and to catalyze competition and innovation in the telecom industry. Now, a little perspective here. In 1984, the big money maker for AT&T was long distance. Mobile phones were still a dream. And if you were lucky enough to have a computer, you probably used Prodigy as your online data portal. Prodigy was a joint venture between CBS, Sears, and IBM, and on a really good day, when the wind was blowing in the right direction and the sunspot activity was inbounds and you lit the appropriate number of candles, you might get 1,200 bits per second out of your squeaking, screaming modem. Of course, no one could use the phone while you were online. Today, of course, voice and data work simultaneously, assuming you even still have a wired phone, and if you don't routinely get 20 million bits per second out of your cable or DSL modem, your friends stop coming over to visit. In the new enlightened world, the AT&T juggernaut is seen as a slow-moving, dead-end dinosaur. But not so fast. In the 50s and 60s, AT&T had a million employees. A million and they had revenues in excess of $3 billion. Now, to be fair, they were indeed a monopoly. Now, it's easy to argue the evil nature of monopolies. I mean, I've been in the telecom industry since 1981, and I make jokes about them all the time. Oh, you don't like the prices of your data service? Well, you should go to the competition. Oh, there is no competition. Oh, well, suck it up, buttercup. And many people complain about the slow pace of innovation under a monopoly. I mean, they are a monopoly after all, so why should they be in a hurry to innovate? Who are they trying to beat to market? Themselves? So it's easy to beat up on big, slow-moving animals like AT&T back in the day, especially since they're no longer around, or at least not in the same form. But let me tell you a story that might give you pause. We're going to hop in the Wayback Machine and travel to February the 26th, 1975, and we're going to step out at the corner of 2nd Avenue, and 13th Street in Lower Manhattan in New York City. There we find New York Telephone's Lower Manhattan Switching Center. This building, which occupied a city block, was the nerve center that provided telephone and data service to 300 New York City blocks, including 104,000 customers and 170,000 telephones. It also served six hospitals, 11 firehouses, three post offices, a police station, nine schools, and three universities. The building was massive, but it was just another big, faceless building that belonged to the phone company and was pretty much invisible to the public. No one really knew what went on inside, and frankly, nobody cared. When night fell, most of the employees went home, leaving a small crew to handle minor maintenance tasks and any service problems that came up overnight. The night was quiet, work in the building was carried out pretty routinely, and as near as anybody could tell, it was going to be another boring evening. At 12.30, just after midnight, a piece of power equipment in the building's sub-basement malfunctioned and spit a few sparks into the air. It didn't cause any alarms because it didn't actually fail. But one of the sparks fell on a piece of plastic insulation and began to smolder. The insulation melted and began to burn, turning from a smoldering spot to a full-blown fire. Soon, the entire basement was involved. 
Now, the basement of a telephone company's central office, which is sometimes called an exchange, is the heart of the building because that's where all the cables that come in from homes and businesses throughout the service area enter and leave the building. They exit the basement on their way to switching equipment on the upper floors through six-inch diameter holes that are drilled in the concrete floors of the office. The fire burned its way up the cables through the holes and spread from floor to floor. Soon the building was engulfed and New York Telephone was on its way to hosting the single worst disaster that any telephone company had ever experienced. As smoke began to pour from the building, emergency vehicles arrived and took up positions around it. They evacuated everyone inside and began flooding the building with hundreds of thousands of gallons of water, destroying equipment on the upper floors that had not yet been affected by the fire. They couldn't control it. All they could do was keep it from spreading to adjacent structures. Two days later, the fire finally burned itself out, and telephone company engineers were able to enter the building to assess the damage. It was a total loss. On the first floor, the 240-foot main distribution frame, a big iron jungle gem-looking frame that supports the tons of cables that carry voice and data services to customers, was reduced to a melted puddle of iron. Water had destroyed the power equipment in the basement. Four switching offices on the lower floors were completely destroyed. Cable distribution ducts between floors were deformed and useless. High bandwidth equipment on the second floor was destroyed. Switching hardware on the fourth, fifth, and sixth floors were smoke and water damaged and would require massive restoration and cleaning before they could be used. And 170,000 telephones were out of service. Some of you will remember that AT&T used to be called the Bell System because it was indeed a system. The extent of the company's ability to respond as a coherent, singular, focused, effective force was never more obvious than it was in response to the Manhattan disaster. Within an hour of discovering the fire, the Bell System mobilized its forces in a massive effort to restore service to the affected area. New York Telephone, AT&T Long Lines, the company's long-distance arm, Western Electric, later Lucent, now part of Nokia, and Bell Laboratories converged on the building and commandeered a vacant storefront across the street to serve as their base of operations. Lee Oberst, New York City Area Vice President, coordinated what would become a 22-day, $90 million restoration. So AT&T immediately commissioned parallel projects to restore the central office. They called upon the company's widespread resources and their 22 operating companies, and Chairman of the Board John DeButts put out an urgent demand for personnel. Within hours, 4,000 employees from across the globe descended on New York City to work 12-hour shifts with 2,000 employees on each shift. Central office engineers reviewed the original drawings of the building's complex architecture to determine what they would need to restore service. The other Bell operating companies were placed on indefinite equipment holds until the office in New York was fully restored. Nassau Recycle Corporation, a Western Electric subsidiary, moved in and began the removal of and recycling of 6,000 tons of debris that came out of the building, much of it toxic. Mobile telephone subsidiaries from across the country sent mobile radio units to New York to provide emergency telephone services. They were installed all over the area, and announcements were posted throughout the city to tell residents where they were located and how to use them. If emergency calls were required, a special center was set up, hosted by employees who took messages from New York City residents and then delivered them by hand to the people that needed them. AT&T's jewel in the crown was Bell Laboratories. 
the recipient of nine Nobel Prizes. The labs, as they're called, are the birthplace of the transistor, the solar cell, cellular telephony, the laser, digital transmission, communication satellites, the operating system known as Unix, and the initial research that discovered the Big Bang. So who better to help with the New York City disaster? Bell Laboratory scientists studied the impact of the fire and mixed 1,350 quarts of specially formulated cleaning fluid for the equipment that could be salvaged. They shipped it to the building along with thousands of toothbrushes and hundreds of thousands of cotton swabs. There are photographs in the AT&T archive showing hundreds of technicians sitting shoulder to shoulder on the curb, a line of technicians stretching into the distance with a toothbrush in one hand and a delicate piece of equipment in the other. Within 24 hours, service had been restored to the medical, police, and fire facilities in the area. Remember that main distribution frame that melted? The day after the fire, a new one was located at Western Electric's Hawthorne Manufacturing Facility north of Chicago and was shipped by cargo plane to New York. Luckily, the third floor of the building had been vacant and was available as a staging area to assemble and install the 240-foot-long, 12-foot-tall iron frame. Keep in mind that we're talking about a frame that's just a bit shorter than a football field. Under normal circumstances, from the time a main distribution frame is ordered, shipped, installed, wired, and tested, six months pass. This frame was ordered, shipped, installed, wired, and tested in four days. It's almost impossible to understand the magnitude of this disaster and the response that was required to get past it. So let me share a few numbers with you. 6,000 tons of debris were removed from the building and 3,000 tons of new equipment was installed, including 1.2 billion feet of underground wire, 8.6 million feet of frame wire, 525,000 linear feet of exchange cable, and 380 million conductor feet of switchboard cable. Five million underground splices were required to hook it all together. 30 trucking companies, 11 airlines, and 4,000 people were pressed into service. And just after midnight, on March 21st, 22 days after the fire, service from the building was restored to 104,000 subscribers. Normally, the job would have taken more than a year to complete. But because of the Bell System's ability to marshal resources during times of crisis, the building was restored in less than a month. AT&T's chairman, John DeButts, had this to say. In the last couple of weeks, I have had the opportunity to observe at first hand the strength of the organization's structure that the Justice Department's antitrust suit seeks to destroy. This service restoration has been called a dramatic accomplishment, and rightly so. But only in the urgency does the teamwork demonstrated in this occasion differ from the teamwork that characterizes the Bell System's everyday job. Of course, the antitrust suit, now known universally as divestiture, went forward as planned nine years later. The Bell System became a memory with just as many people celebrating its death as mourning it. And while there's a lot to be said for the innovation, competitive breakthroughs, and reduced prices for telecommunications services that came out of the AT&T breakup, it's hard to hear this story without feeling just a little bit proud of what a company like AT&T, even as a monopoly, can do when disaster strikes. John DeButts said it best. What could you feel except a, a sense of tiredness and a sense of uh, real satisfaction that I haven't pulled off, uh, well, what everybody has begun to call a miracle of second half. I'm Steve Shepard. For the Natural Curiosity Project, 
Thanks for taking this trip with me in the Wayback Machine. I'll see you in the next episode.